0: Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Ooh, 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 ooh. Thanks for tuning in to Harvesting Happiness today for a healthy serving of consciously prepared brain food. This is Lisa Cypress Kamen, your host. For more than 13 years, I've been handcrafting these sound ideas for better well being. Each week, I love spotlighting diverse thinkers and doers who are contemporary trendsetters and change agents, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. I invite you to listen up and change the way you think about human happiness. Our award winning content is fresh, optimistic, and purpose driven media that promotes well being from the inside out. Alrighty then, let's dive in. This episode offers psychosocial education designed to inspire and motivate our listeners. The information provided does not constitute a therapeutic relationship nor a substitute for professional mental health care. If you are experiencing a mental health crisis, call 911, go to your nearest emergency room, or for listeners in the United States, text 988 for the National Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Good morning, good afternoon and good evening wherever you are. Thanks for joining me on today's show where you will learn about power thinking, teaching information literacy and mental immunity. My guest today is Melanie Tresic King. She is currently an associate professor of biology at Massasoit Community College where she teaches a general education science course designed to equip students with empowering critical thinking, information literacy and science literacy. An active speaker and consultant Teresa King loves to share her teach-skills-not-facts approach with other science educators and helps organizations meet their goals through better thinking. Teresa King is also the Education Director for the Mental Immunity Project and CIRCE, also known as the Cognitive Immunology Research Collaborative, which aims to advance and apply the science of mental immunity to inoculate minds against misinformation. Amen. <laughs> Melanie, thanks for joining me today. Oh, thanks for having me on. I'm so excited. I am too, because I believe that the better we think, the more mentally and emotionally fit we are, the better we perform. And I know the research supports this.
1: Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of problems we have to solve, and I really don't know a better way than just to think better.
0: Yeah. So let's talk about the the powerfulness. Of thinking, you know, what our minds can actually do and accomplish. Because like, if we can think it, if we can imagine it, we can make it so, but that might not necessarily be a good thing in all, all instances, just because we think it doesn't make it
1: right. <laughs> yeah, actually, one of the, the, the hardest, I think, initial lessons in thinking better is is to realize that what your mind does on autopilot is not necessarily something that's very reliable. So I teach college students how to think better. And I always start with you know, your perceptions of the world and what you remember and how you're thinking, um, those provide you with useful information, but they might not necessarily be the best way to approach thinking better. So like step one is don't necessarily trust what you think you see, hear, remember, or think. Because the mind is a slippery place, right? Yeah. Actually, I, I start my lessons with um, day one after the syllabus. I give them a personality assessment. And I have this whole ruse where turns out I'm a good liar. I didn't know this about myself, but I say, um, <laughs> I know. Um, you're poker-faced. Maybe I, you're a good, good poker face. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I really didn't think I could do that. So I'll, I'll tell them, you know, I have a, a friend who's a who's a psychic and she's really good at what she does. Uh, she's written books. She's on TV. I'm not gonna tell you who she is yet because I don't want you to look her up, but she's knows I'm teaching a course on how to think better. And she is offered to you to test her effectiveness by doing a personality assessment. And so if you're interested in doing this, you know here's some questions she wants and uh, just answer these brief questions. And next time I'll pass out your assessments. So day two, I see the students, it's usually after a weekend and I'll say, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pass them out. But remember, we're testing her effectiveness. So read through them, but don't let anyone know what you think of them. And then when you're done, we're going to rate her effectiveness anonymously, right? So they read them and on a scale of one to five, how accurate is she? And I've done this for years. 4.3 4.3 to 4.5 out of five, generally speaking. Okay, now, wow, you thought you're she was really effective. So if you feel comfortable, get with another student and talk about it. Like, what? why did you think she was so effective? What about it really spoke to you? And sometimes it takes them like 10 minutes to realize they all got the same one, right? And so, yes. Okay, now, did I lie to you? Yes, I did it for free. And for educational purposes, right? (laughs) But why did you fall for this? Like, if I just told you you could be fooled, you might not necessarily believe me, but I fooled you to prove to you I could fool you. So now let's start to go on to these lessons about how easily we are fooled and how we can think better so that we don't get fooled. Wow. Wow that is something and that opens up a whole bunch of questions right like
0: we are so easily influenced we want to believe right i think part of it is that that the mind wants to attach because that attachment is part of connection to society to normalizing and validating ourselves would be part of what i'm guessing
1: yeah I have my students also, when we talk about pseudoscience, I have them design ads for pseudoscientific products. And here's the thing, all of this is selling hope. Like all of these forms of pseudoscience, what they're doing is they're appealing to the part of us that needs hope. And so you can sell people any number of things, as long as you're giving them some sort of a solution to a problem that they have. And that hope is a way that they, they fool us. And so if we don't want to be fooled, we need to know that's a weak spot for us. Am I just believing this because I want to? What is actually the evidence behind this? Could something like this actually work? But you have to know that you're fooled by that. Well, and I think if you look at modern marketing and the modern
0: media, it's all about trying to sell us something that will make us happier, richer, like it taps into all of the things that we want as human beings, regardless if it's true thinner,
1: thinner, right. More muscly, better sexual endurance, whatever it is, what yeah. we're trying to do. Like we, we want, we want solutions and these are hard problems and sometimes they're unsolvable problems and they're certainly not easy to solve if we can do something about them, but that's where pseudoscience slips in, right? It's selling us this false hope. So
0: how do we approach these
1: conversations with people when the temperature is hot? Oh, wow. That's a really good question. Uh, With my class, I do it because they are captive for four months and they want to grade. And so they have to stick with me the whole time as I walk through the whole thing and like have this linear approach to something I want them to get to. In the real world, it's a lot more difficult. I've tried to set up, like I have a website created to do something like that. but, But honestly, there's a lot of skills that you have to learn before you start applying them to actual problems.
0: So somebody comes into your classroom, I mean, you say to them, I'm going to help you learn to think better. I'm going to give you the tools. I'm going to help you
1: assemble a toolkit of a process. What does that look like? With my students. So I was teaching a course. Most people when they don't want to be scientists for the rest of their lives, when they go to college, they have to take a science class to fill their science electives and they take intro bio. And I'm a biologist by training. I absolutely love biology and I think this stuff in it is Really interesting that, honestly, in a perfect world, everybody would know. But I realized through the process of doing that, what I was teaching students was to memorize a bunch of factoids, regurgitate them on an exam, and then like not only forget them afterwards, they probably would leave hating science more than when they came in. And so what I did in its place was created a course to teach these skills, not facts. But learning how to think critically is not enough. Right, Knowing how to think critically is not useful if we don't apply it. So um, with the class, what I've tried to do is teach students about what might happen if you don't think critically. So I use a lot of what's the harm questions. What's the harm of falling for something? So with the personality assessment, the harm might be like, I don't know, 50 bucks lost and maybe a false sense of believing that something, uh, somebody might be able to read the personality. Homeopathy, uh, you might get sick and die if you're actually using homeopathy to treat various um, illnesses that actually need to be treated by a medical doctor. So um, I, every time I approach one of these topics, it's like, well, here's how to think better, but here's what might happen for falling if you fell for something like this.
0: Well, and you look at today's politically polarized climate and both sides of extremes, I think, are rife
1: with a lot of, I don't know, what do you call it? Junk. <laughs> yeah, I mean, one of the major ways we come to believe things is through our social identity. We all have groups or tribes that we belong to. And um, they're our people, right? They're people who are like us, and so we trust them. And we adopt many of their beliefs. Sometimes without even realizing it. Um, And yeah, because then once you do that, um, you risk losing membership in that group if you disagree with them. And so, yeah, both sides have a proneness to various forms of pseudoscience or science denial. Um, And it's only by getting students to realize how, um, one of the exercises I do with my students is Okay. Um how many species of elephant are there? Do you know the answer to this question? I don't.
0: But yeah, I would like can. to know. Oh, species of elephant? I, I I
1: two dozen? Oh, wow. Interesting. Okay. Would you care if you were wrong? No. I would hmm. assume I would assume that I was wrong because
0: <laughs> I've never thinking about okay. it before. I have never I have never thought about it.
1: Yeah. Okay. So there's three. Only Um, three? Yeah. There used to be two, but the African elephant has been split into the forest elephant and the Savannah elephant. And then there's the Asian elephant. Wow. So I'll do this with my students. Okay. Now, do you care if you were wrong? No, no, nobody cares. Right. Um, Imagine if you cared that little that you were wrong about any other thing. Right. Got it. how much easier it would be to align your beliefs with the evidence if you didn't have so much emotionally, socially I um um attached to that belief, right? So the goal would be to care that little, right? Like um uh, Daniel Kahneman said something like if you can embrace the joy of being wrong, then you're less wrong when you change your mind, right? And th- imagine that. Like I'm wrong. That's brilliant. I'm- now I know. That's so brilliant. Like that yeah, I, I,
0: I get what you're saying. Like it is okay to be wrong. And in fact, it's, it's, it's just that you have the wrong information and then you learn the information and then you have the knowledge and then you can move on and share that knowledge with somebody else.
1: Now imagine doing that for like vaccines or climate change or right. Like, oh, that's what the evidence says. Oh, okay. Well then I'll change my mind. Yeah. Oh, I can be part of a solution. Yes. With that knowledge. Yes. I can talk about how um I address issues, um I start them thinking by um by using things that aren't triggering. Well, that's an interesting point. So
0: like when you talk about thinking better and the strategy for helping others to think more strategically to think it more in a in a more balanced and measured way and have personal inquiry and curiosity your strategy is is to to not talk about triggering things
1: to kind of back into it yeah um if we're triggered we can't think critically about something actually the part of our brain that perceives a physical threat is the same part that is activated. If we perceive a threat to core beliefs, to like identity defining beliefs. So we, we literally get defensive to the same part where we would be physically attacked.
0: So So the amygdala is it the amygdala gets, it gets activated. Yes. Mm -hmm. Which then causes a lot of stress hormone to course through the body.
1: And then executive thinking goes out the window. Yeah, we go into fight or flight. So when I start, for example, um, day one is personality assessments. Um, Day two, (laughs) I do witches. Okay, we're going to start now with lecture. And what I'm going to do is tell you a story. And um, at the end of the story, we're going to talk about what that might mean. But the story is... And then I talk about the witch trials, um, the the witchcraft hysteria and the trials from like Europe in the 1500s, 1600s and and so on. Okay, Um, I even get into um, their best evidence for witchcraft was being accused or um, being um, uh, confessing. But of course you confessed because they were torturing you. And so right. I talk about the various ways we torture. I like, it gets terrible the like and, and like, I know that this is emotionally disturbing, but there's a point to what I'm saying, right? So when we get through all of this, say, okay, they were so convinced that witches were causing um storms to destroy crops and birth defects and um, infectious diseases. They were so convinced that they were killing people. Okay now again this is one of those beliefs um n- almost none of my students believe in witchcraft I've had a few students um, largely immigrants who believe in witchcraft but even they are able to look at these past events and um f- from like a bird's eye view I mean they were really really sure and these were some of the smartest people at the time how good was their evidence okay why might I have told you this story right and so then they start to think about well what might? I believe that might be wrong. I might even be sure that I'm right, but how good is my evidence for that? So again, starting with this non-triggering belief where they're able to observe from the outside and then start to internalize it on themselves. This is really, really good. Really smart
0: stuff, right? Because you, if you come in through the side door and then you get a consensus uh, based upon these non-triggering situations You can then step into the more risky territories and challenge those
1: beliefs. They have to practice those skills before they get to something that might trigger them. Yes. All right. And what are the skills? Well, the three skills that I focus on are critical thinking, information literacy, and science literacy. And I set them up in that order. There's a lot of overlap between them. But the basic idea is um, I I teach students first, uh, you know, basic metacognitive skills, um, how um, the structure of arguments, logical fallacies. I teach them skepticism. um, And then we do information literacy. And I don't do that until I've got them the basics of critical thinking, because the reasons we fall for misinformation are largely because of our own thinking errors. That's why we can't spot it, is that they appeal to the parts of us that want to believe those things. And then once we get past information, then I go into science literacy. And I find, so um, I I have taught another class, it's traditional science class, it starts with like scientific method, and then like, here's all the things that we know. What I find is if students don't realize why we need science to begin with, then the logic of the scientific method doesn't really make any sense. They have to first understand why science is different than, oh, I saw this, so it's true, or I heard this, so it must be true. The kinds of biases that can cloud our perception of reality, they have to understand that before they get to the process of science, and then it just falls into place. Love this. We're going to need to
0: take a break, but uh, I want to just plant the seed here. I'm going to ask you when we come back to talk about common thinking errors because i think when we're able to understand what that really looks like we can see ourselves in the equation my all of us not me i think we all do this from time to time even the most perfect critical thinkers and what we can do about it here comes the pause we'll be right back to continue the conversation with my guest today melanie treesick king to learn more go to thinkingispower.com formerly twitter at thinking powers on facebook at thinking powers and on instagram thinking is power here comes the pause we'll be right back research tells us that happiness is good for our health happy people live longer are more productive and make better partners parents and professionals Want more sound ideas for better well-being? Check out our new bonus edition content, More Mental Fitness by Harvesting Happiness, available exclusively on Medium and Substack. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one, and at times we all need a little support. To learn more about lifestyle management and mental fitness consulting services, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. And we're back talking with Melanie Tresik-King about power thinking, teaching information literacy and mental immunity. Let's get back to it. And Melanie, before the break, you went into the kinds of conversations that you have with your students about non-controversial topics to get them to understand the principles of thinking better. But I want to ask you to share some common thinking errors that we as humans make
1: oh that is <laughs> uh, there's <is> a lot <laughs> um i would say probably the biggest is confirmation bias and confirmation bias is the tendency to um once we've formed a belief all evidence everything we perceive has a way of supporting that belief um maybe an example so my husband and i like to play cards And, um, I should preface this with, I'm not a very good loser. And so, um, we have this card game that we play and it's super fun, but every time we start the game, literally every time, this is how it goes. Uh, we're going to play the game. You're just going to beat me again. Aren't you? Right. Uh, Last time you kicked my butt and then cue look on husband's face of what are you talking about? You won the last game. No, I didn't. Right. So the conversation goes now. He has been keeping score on who wins the games. And I'm currently up like 120 to 70 games or something like that. So the evidence is pretty, I know that I win like almost every time, but that's not what I remember. I remember losing. And so the only reason he's able to talk me off that ledge is because he's been keeping data, right? But then I'll be like, well, yeah, okay, I'm up, but you beat me the last game should I look at my notes, right? So, <laughs> but here's the thing, right? This happens all the time. Whatever our pre-existing worldviews are, our beliefs, et cetera, all of the evidence supports that. And the only way to get out of that is to recognize that we have this bias. It's fueling what we perceive and what we remember and try as much as possible to seek independent data. Now, if you're convinced you're right, you're not gonna do that, of course. You don't need the data. If you're convinced you're right, like, the data doesn't matter. And that is a problem. (laughs) Yeah. But it happens literally all the time. Like, it's constantly going on in the background. Um, Another one, another one is the availability heuristic. So the availability heuristic is um, we're trying to remember. So let's say that we're trying to perceive how likely an event is. Um, one of the ways that we do that is by thinking, well, how easily can I remember this? Now, the problem is that our memories are biased towards things that are emotional, recent, negative. So, f- for example, my niece recently came to stay me, uh, stay with me. I live outside of Boston. My niece is 10. Her dad is my brother. And we're talking about the things she could do when she was out here to see me. And I mentioned doing the duck boats, which, you know, in Boston, the duck boats are like one of the things you do. And he says, well, you know, I don't think I'm water on the duck boats. Um, There was that really bad accident with duck boats. I'm like, a few years back. Yeah. What are you talking about? So, so I looked it up and there was, there was a duck boat accident on like, I think it was the Ozarks and it must've been coming up on 10 years now. And yeah, actually a lot of people did die and that was really unfortunate, but how many duck boats are there? Like how often do duck boats run? How many people are on duck boats each year? So being able to remember that as in, okay, duck boats must be dangerous because I can remember when this accident happened isn't really reflective of what reality is. Yes.
0: And the statistical and then, danger
1: of, of going on a duck boat. <laughs> it's more dangerous to drive to the duck boat than it yeah. is to be on the duck boat. Um, and I one more, because uh, things in three make a lot of sense is overconfidence. Actually, Daniel Kahneman, I've quoted him twice now, Daniel Kahneman said if there was one bias he could get rid of, if he had a magic wand, it would be overconfidence. Because the problem is if we're overconfident that we're right, then we're not likely to change our mind. So being able to proportion your confidence and not be so confident, be able to change your mind with evidence. I love
0: this. And when we think of groups who shall remain nameless for the sake of listener unity, that overconfidence and alternative facts, right, are a part of what is a creates a construct of a of a, of another reality that has zero to do with facts, statistics, and what is. And that's yeah. not what it's about anyway, right? It's about converting the belief to have a, a stronger tribe. It's actually not
1: about the data. Yeah. Oh gosh, there's so much good stuff in there. (laughs) So misinformation appeals to us when it confirms our biases. Like if I see a news story and it fits with how I see the world, then I'm not going to question it, right? We don't question it until we're like, wait a minute, is that true? So the hardest time to be skeptical and the most important time is when it confirms our biases. If we're emotionally triggered, like if we're outraged or afraid And the more we hear it, the more we hear a falsehood, the more likely we are to remember it. Yes. And believe it. And and believe it. Yes. So if I'm in an echo chamber of unreliable news sources that are constantly repeating the same false information that makes me angry and that confirms what I already think is true, and the result is I'm overconfident in what I think is true, and it's very hard to change someone's mind once they get there. And therein lies the challenge. Right? To how to how
0: we can become better critical thinkers? And I, I would argue, free thinkers, no matter what tribe we decide to attach ourselves to, that we have that we have free will in the way we
1: decide we're going to think. When I teach my students about critical thinking, one of the most important things is to recognize when a belief is important to your identity or to your tribe. So, um, um, divorcing this idea of a belief, even recognizing when a belief is coming from your tribe, like starting back from, we all like to think that our beliefs are evidence-based. Like I believe these things because I have evaluated all the evidence and it's what makes the most sense. And of course, when you think that, then you're going to be overconfident with what you think anyway, but you don't even realize that that came from just like, a people that you trust because they're in your same group. So recognizing where that belief comes from, but then just like backing up and saying, um, I, 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 I do this visual in my own head where I like to think of myself and the belief and literally detach it, like pull it out from myself and put it off to the side and trying to feel about that belief the same way I feel about like, um, the the elephant species. Yes. but that takes, that takes a lot of practice and a lot of metacognitive skills to, to recognize when a belief is close to ourselves, and then to purposefully go through the process of detaching it and then getting to a place where, I don't know, am I right? Am I wrong? I don't really care. What does the evidence say? Yeah. So it's
0: uh, becoming the neutral observer, detaching to observe with neutrality sort of gather, analyze the facts or the information, and then go back in and make a
1: decision. So you disconnect yeah. to connect back with the topic. It is incredibly hard to be objective about something. <laughs> yes. You were on the line. <laughs> yeah. But what, the more you practice it, the
0: the easier it becomes. And I think also being in a state of, of curiosity, like, like, I need to know, I need, I need to understand more about
1: this. Yes. Yes. Actually, I teach my students, it's be curious, be skeptical, be humble. Yeah. So this curiosity is, I, I want to know, right? Be skeptical. Could I be wrong? If I was wrong, how would I know? And be humble. Could I be wrong? Yeah, I might be. I'm willing to change my mind, right? So those are really important skills, but they, they do require a lot of practice. They're not something that comes naturally, right? They, they are like in all of human history, science as a revolution didn't really start until like the 1600s. We didn't get statistics until like a hundred or two years later. Like That kind of thinking does not come naturally to humans. And so we have a lot of getting out of our own heads to do to practice better thinking. This is a great point. And I think another interesting point
0: that I would love to discuss with you is the nature of science and change. Because science does change. Things evolve, right? Like you you have one set of data based upon how something presents or you're researching it. And then as time goes by, the information that we have changes so therefore the
1: science is dynamic and organic and must shift I am so glad you brought that up because a lot of people hear that and then they hear science is always changing its mind it clearly doesn't know anything when honestly like changing your mind with evidence is a good thing yes right? science is, is a process of trying to understand reality recognizing that we have our own biases that can lead us astray our scientific understanding of something is only as good as the current evidence. And when the evidence changes, we should be able to change its mind, change our mind. Yes, science is always sensitive to varying degrees. Some things are are much less likely to change than others. Um, but when science changes its mind, it means we learned something. And yes. that's awesome. That is awesome. And things, the
0: only guarantee in life is that things won't stay the same. I mean that if you look at the the world view in that way there you know nothing actually can stay the same well maybe the sunrise and the sunset that that those things happen you know
1: once in the morning and once at night i mean yeah so i think about my students pre-pandemic i started teaching the new class to replace biology right before the pandemic and honestly i feel like i failed my students because i worry about how they viewed um the the state of science during the pandemic We all saw science play out in real time. We had a new virus. We had a new vaccine. Do masks work? Which masks work? Under what circumstances do masks work? And and our understanding of all of that was changing as we gathered new information. And even our understanding of it um, in different situations is nuanced. It's not black or white. There's lots of shades of gray there. So when science is saying, here's what we've learned now, you know what, you don't actually need to sanitize your mail before it comes into the house that doesn't mean that science lied to you before. It means that we've learned something and we can still change our minds in the future with better evidence. And so the new class, what I'm trying to do is teach students all of that, right? Science is always tentative. All we have is our best evidence based on the current situation and the conclusions that we can draw from that. If new evidence comes in, we should be able to change our mind. I love this. We're out of time. So I wanted to do a closing
0: thought because well, it's not over yet because our listeners can go to our new partnership sub-stack between Harvesting Happiness and Circe to learn more and take a deeper dive on the subject. But I wanted to sort of dangle a carrot of the inoculation theory about mental immunity.
1: Just like give us a little nugget and then we'll close. <laughs> Okay, so um, one of the things that I use in class to teach my students how to think better is it's called inoculation theory. This was proposed by um, William McGuire in the 60s. The idea is that... um, like a vaccine exposes our bodies to a bit of misinformation, uh, to a bit of a, a, va- a germ, and our bodies learn to recognize it to fight it off. Inoculation theory does something similar, but for misinformation. So, if you expose the mind to a bit of misinformation under controlled conditions, then um, you can um, build up an immunity, a mental immunity to that misinformation in the real world. So, um, I like to use a lot of what's called an active um, inoculation where I teach my students the techniques of um, misinformation and then I have them create it so that they are um, inoculated against that misinformation in real life. And it's fun. So, oh, gosh, absolutely. Yeah. Listen to the next part.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah. It is fun and creative. You know, it's like how big can you go with the idea and play the edge, right? Of fact or fiction. Love this. My guest today has been Melanie Treasick King. We're talking about the power of thinking. And to learn more about Melanie's work, please visit thinkingispower.com. On X, formerly Twitter, go to at Thinking Powers. On Facebook, it's also at Thinking Powers. And on Instagram, slightly different. Thinking is power. And come on over to Substack and listen to the extras over there. Cha-cha-cha. <laughs> Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness today. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen on behalf of my guest, Melanie Treesick king wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember... Happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Please go out and rock your day and remember to be kind to one another. Want to take a deeper dive into sound ideas for better well-being? Check out our new bonus edition content, More Mental Fitness by Harvesting Happiness, available exclusively on Medium and Substack. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime, anywhere, from the comfort of wherever you are subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes from wherever you get your podcasts. Connect with and follow us on most social media channels. To learn more about lifestyle management and mental fitness consulting services, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Harvesting Happiness and more mental fitness are produced by me, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, Andrea Mengeli, Robin Boyd, Andrea Daly, and the awesome team at Podfly Productions, including Eric Begay, Kimberly Beck, and Alec Guess, in collaboration with TogiNet Radio, KBUU, RadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the Public Radio Exchange.